Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and today we need to discuss how painfully out of touch our leaders are. Breaking news. <laughs> there are many ways to capture the suffering across America right now, but clearly the worst of all is the staggering death toll from this pandemic. Think about it. What was the deadliest single day in American history? Well, history says it was the day a hurricane smashed into Galveston in 1900 and killed 8,000 souls. By that standard, the second deadliest day in American history, are you listening? The second deadliest day was April 15th of this year when the deaths of 6,489 Americans from COVID-19 were officially recorded. But of course, the story only gets worse. The third and fourth deadliest days are well known, the Battle of Antietam in the Civil War, when 3,600 Americans died on both sides. And of course, 9-11, in which 2,977 Americans people perished. So where am I headed with this? Tell me, the next four deadliest days in the long history of America, a history I might add that we progressives are always, always pointing out was full of oppression, violence, and carnage. Well, the fifth most deadliest day in American history was last Thursday. 2,861 Americans died of COVID-19. And the sixth, seventh, and eighth most deadly were last Wednesday, Tuesday, and Friday, when between 2,700 and 2,400 people died each day in this country. And of course, these chilling numbers don't even begin to capture the millions of people thrown out of work, struggling to feed their families, to pay the rent, keep the heat on this winter, or the many thousands who survived a bout of COVID-19 but now are suffering long-term damage. So I have this question to the leaders of Congress right now. What about this do you not understand? How can you be so out of touch as not to see that your country needs help right now and you're there to provide it? The utter disregard for human life and livelihood by our lawmakers is, is nauseating. The country doesn't care about your partisan divides and political tactics. The situation across the country is already as bad, if not worse, than it was in April, and it is continuing to deteriorate. The load on the hospital system of COVID cases is already beyond last April, and that will push the death toll up without a doubt. Every death is a personal tragedy for families and communities. But we also are facing a national tra tragedy of families that have lost their incomes, their breadwinners, their savings, their homes. Yet in Washington, they quibble over an aid package that won't be nearly adequate even in their best version. What about this moment suggests that the unemployed need less help than they needed back in March when the CARES Act was passed. Yet less help is exactly what is on the table. A $300 unemployment supplement instead of the $600 one voted last March. And neither the Democrat nor Republican plans provide the $1,200 one-time relief checks most people got back then. Why not? The financial needs are greater, if not greater, not smaller, as we head into this dreadful winter. There are families and small businesses that have been hanging on by their fingernails. A small business that failed last spring in the COVID crash was a tragedy. But a small business allowed to fail now, when the end of this is in sight, is a scandal. The vaccine news is hopeful for sure, but vaccines don't end epidemics. Vaccination campaigns end epidemics. And on that, 
we are just getting started. Already, we are learning that Trump blew the chance to buy more of the Pfizer vaccine. What else has he gotten wrong? Well, who knows? It terrifies me to say that he's going to be president for 42 more days. But even if nothing else goes wrong in the vaccination campaign, we have many, many difficult months ahead. Families and small businesses need help getting through the winter, staying in their homes. Here is what makes me angriest of all. You know who is, of course, doing just fine in this crisis? Huge corporations. Surprise, surprise. Americans, big companies, have stashed away $2 trillion this year. Cash sitting in their vaults. I said $2 trillion. That is more cash than American companies have ever accumulated before. They're going to do just fine this winter, and their CEOs are going to do just fine this winter. Now, I'd like to think they might start hiring people and investing in new products and raising wages, but why do I expect that they will mostly just raise dividends and buy their stocks back? No, corporate America isn't going to save the millions of people and small businesses that don't happen to have $2 trillion stashed away. Only Congress can do what needs to be done, and they need to do it now. So drop your ice cream, Nancy Pelosi, and start acting like a progressive fighter the way that Fox News paints you as. We have a great show today. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi, we have Shahid Buttar on to talk about all these appointments and, of course, why Congress is not responding to the needs of Americans. And later, we are joined by Jordan Zacharin and Simon Rode. But stick around. Make sure to smash that like button. Click subscribe. You know the jam. It's the holiday season. Uh... My indoctrination campaign continues with urging everybody to buy their friends and family uh, patrons, uh, become patrons at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for as low as $5 a month. If you're feeling extra generous, you can get a mug, we've got stickers, we've got bags, you know, the whole ladder, how it works. And of course, there's extra content there, special interviews, and there will be a lot during this holiday season. So go check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be right back with the one and only Shahid Buttar. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show, and welcome back, our friend. Uh, he was most recently a congressional candidate running against the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, Shahid Buttar. He is an attorney. Uh, he is the former uh, director of grassroots a- advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's on the board of directors, the Center for Media Justice, Defending Rights and Dissent, and Fund for Constitutional Government. He is the guy to have on to discuss well, we booked you in advance to talk, to discuss the appointments, but I am so angry at Nancy Pelosi right now that you might have to put on your old hat and 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 start critiquing what's going on in Congress right now with their utter lack of 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 humanity in response to this crisis. Um, Shahad, thanks for joining us. You're on mute. Just as a heads up. <laughs> Thank you. So so glad to be with you, and I'm super glad to talk about any of those folks. I mean, holding power accountable is what we are about. And whether that's Biden or Pelosi, unfortunately, uh, there's no shortage of people to be disappointed by in Congress and in Washington. So what do you think is, I mean, let's let's put the political strategy hat on before we get to the, just the disregard for human life. Um, if there was like any out for the Democrats, do you think this is just a game over, well, we want a bigger package once we potentially have the Senate, um, once Biden takes office? Do you think it's really about that politically 
or I mean, I'm just giving them a little bit there to, to maybe that's their out, but. I mean, yeah, if we imagine a four dimensional chess game, at least the center conservative Democrat talking point is we can get more next year if we wait. And the challenge there, of course, is that state and local governments, families, workers, people are struggling right now in a severe, really real way. And to delay the stimulus that our economy needs, that a people struggling in an ongoing crisis need for political purposes, I think that's bankrupt at the outset, whether there was a positive rationale for it or not, frankly. And I would just you know, look at the facts. There's a lot of spin in Washington, and it's hard sometimes to look through different pundits. But if you just look at the facts, what Congress has passed already are tax breaks for millionaires. The centerpiece of this stimulus bill is a corporate liability shield to keep employers from having to answer in courts when they put workers at risk in the middle of a pandemic or when they put their customers at risk. This isn't a stimulus bill at all. This is a corporate liability shield with a carrot on it, and the carrot is literally half of what McConnell put on the table two months ago. And so the idea that anybody should be satisfied with, and I, you know, I wouldn't use these words, but I will quote Jordan Sheridan from Status Quo, who described it as a shit sandwich, and it is an entirely apt description. Uh, no one should be satisfied with it, and it is entirely what we should expect from corporate Democrats. You know, I, I'm in the uncomfortable position, and it brings me no joy to say, and I don't, but I think a lot. I told you so. And she is just revealing herself, Nancy Pelosi, as the speaker, to be exactly the figure who she has been in Congress for 30 years that no journalist anywhere seems to have been interested in holding her accountable for. You know, I just go back to the fact that she hasn't debated anyone since Ronald Reagan was in the White House, and she governs like Ronald Reagan was still in the White House, and we are all paying the price for it. Why do you think she's, I mean, let's pull back the curtain a little bit on her. I mean, you've obviously spent the last few years, uh, twice, uh, running against her and understanding the psyche. When you're running against a candidate, especially if it's one, you really want to get into the mind of that candidate and their campaign and their operation. And, and especially in a moment like right now where she is one of the emblems of, of why Washington is not responding. I mean, it, it's one thing to have partisanship and everything is being held up because you have a split government. It's another thing for, I mean, they can come together for military budgets. They can come together for corporate bailouts. They can come together for 9-11 sing songs on, the, on Capitol Hill, if you're old enough to remember that. But they can't come together for an eviction crisis that we're facing in three weeks in this country. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned this stat a few times and it's probably been updated since then. In New York City alone, in October, 80% of small businesses, why I mentioned at the top, could not pay their rent in New York City. So if in New York City that's happening, what's happening in San Francisco? What's happening in Washington, D.C.? What's happening in Chicago, Miami, uh, Dallas, every big city of Phoenix, every big city across America? Even small towns right now exactly. are dealing with this. I mean, this is across the country. And, and it's not just in terms of the business crisis. Just think about the public health crisis right now. And this is one in which she, too, is complicit. Medicare for all would get people doctors and medicine that they currently can't get. We're the only country in the world that doesn't have it, and we are performing the worst by far without a close second in responding to the coronavirus. As many people are dying every day in the United States as we lost in the 9-11 attacks, every damn day. And that's not just Trump's fault. That is a system-wide failure and is a system in which corporate Democrats, as you've noted, are un unfortunately entirely complicit. And the failures of this paradigm, you know, when I look at Pelosi and I try to explain her governance, just a, one, one riff diving into your question and then, a, you know, a shot and an answer, I saw this similar 
uh, abdication of partisan interest, you know, what might make sense back when she was covering up CIA torture. Human rights are a democratic position. Barack Obama had just won the White House on an anti-war, anti-Bush platform, and Pelosi's in the background covering up. And not only did she cover up CIA torture then, but she's part of a continuing cover-up now. Senator Dianne Feinstein has described this whole saga as a constitutional crisis, and it's why unrepentant torturers lead the CIA today. Uh, but I digress. So when Nancy Pelosi was covering up CIA torture, that didn't play in the Democrats' partisan interest. It didn't play in the constitutional interest of regulating the executive branch. It didn't cover the local interest in human rights. San Francisco is a city where the United Nations was founded. And speaking of the United Nations, there just happens to be an international law requiring prosecution where the evidence leads. So in one fell swoop, she undermined international law, the local sensibility supporting human rights, her partisan interest, her constitutional oath of office, and all the, so, so you might ask, why would she cover up those things? And I would say that Nancy Pelosi ultimately is a power defender. She is an agent of capital, Wall Street, and the military industrial complex. I dare say she is, in fact, an embodiment of each of those things, in, to no less an extent than Joe Biden. But again, well, I digress. What's really mind-boggling to me about this, though, is, yes, on a, any given day, um, corporate uh, Democrats are going to defend capital, as of course Republicans are. You know that's why they're there. I think what's just jaw dropping is, you know, we talked about this in the show yesterday. You, you looked at the EU, and and even the most conservative, austerity-driven governments in the EU are pres- are, are giving their citizens right. basic income right now. I mean, Angela Merkel, austerity queen doesn't seize humanity in a different light because okay. and, and 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 the funny thing is is they don't even have to do that to get elected in this mm-hmm. country you do have to do that to get elected so i i yeah. what i don't understand is you have you know joe biden is about to inherit this presidency doesn't he want the material conditions just to be a little bit better to deal with just a little bit better so he doesn't have as much of a shit sandwich to eat on day one <laughs> I, you know, I would hope so. I mean, this is kind of like the question people used to ask the question during the Cold War of, I hope the Russians love their children too. And of course, Joe Biden wants things to be better, I would hope. Except that if you look at who he's been and what he's done over his not recent career, I mean, he's been in Washington for 40 years and he just like Nancy Pelosi is a power defender. He's a cheerleader for every war. He was appointed as Obama's vice president in order to quell fears on Wall Street that Obama was too radical. So Biden is demonstrably the most conservative Democrat to win the White House since Harry Truman 70 years ago. And that's worth noting, right? Everybody's celebrating Trump being gone. And first of all, he's not gone yet. And I think that the, you know, everybody looking ahead to the Biden administration, I, I hope certainly we can trust that that transition is going to happen with the Supreme Court in the hands of who it is. I am less certain that that is necessarily something we can be assured about. But that aside, you know, Biden's been an agent of the past. And I think the whole theme I see when I look at politics at the moment, understanding that we, it's not as if the climate crisis grew any better in the last several months, right? It's not as if the pandemic, frankly, has gotten any better in the last several months. Like, yes, there's a vaccine, but we have a massive logistical undertaking to do anything about it. And we've demonstrated our capacity to deal with stuff like that recently, right? PPE was a logistical exercise too. And look how well we were prepared for that. I just, I have a lot of skepticism of a great deal of things that the you know, political class seems to be very smugly self-assured about. And the continuity of democracy, the getting on the other side of the pandemic, they're both among them. Climate crisis, obviously. 
And, and I, I see a lot of people looking forward to a normal future when we have, it is not in any way assured. Like we have a great deal of work to do to try to establish anything even resembling what anybody thinks of as normal in this country. And whatever the past was, I don't think we can return to it. Uh, and, and Biden, of course, having, well, demonstrated himself in office, I think is probably the last person poised to embrace the future. Having said all that, I do have very little hope in Biden and I have very little trust in Harris, but I do have some hope in Harris. Does that make sense? Like, I don't trust her at all. I saw what she did as the AG. I saw what she did as the yeah. DA. She was not a progressive here in California. But she was, frankly, in the Senate, not not progressive. Like she stood generally she on the left. Lose. She, you know, she signed on to bills that were great for a, a national political career. I mean, I'm not saying that's. You're absolutely I'm not right. I have it, but I am saying. <laughs> no, you're totally right. The critical analysis of hers is convenient, and that's true. But the convenience and her inclination to do what's convenient might be a good thing at a time when we, the people, are trying to hold accountable a class of politicians who otherwise have demonstrated their intransigence. She at least is not intransigent. And that, I, I hope, offers some possibility for fluidity should she find herself at the desk in the Oval Office. I mean, the, the, it's interesting you mentioned that because the one thing I've noticed in this these appointments, um, which I'd love to get your take on, is is there is, I mean, one of the, the, the people who's overseeing the um, appointments right now, the transition committee, is Tony West, who is Kamala Harris's uh, brother-in-law, chief counsel to Uber. Uh, <laughs> so that's why you saw a lot of those, you know, tech companies, Prop 22. You know, I thought we were against Uber, but I guess like we're back in, Uber is a democratic, uh, back in the democratic lane. Uh, but, you know, you see these appointments and, and there are a lot of like Hillary Clinton circle names. And I mean, there've been countless stories written about how Secretary, Secretary Clinton supported Kamala Harris, sort of gave her the, the Brock bots, <laughs> whatever, the, the, the online army, uh, which has also been written about that turned into K-Hive. Um, among I've many experienced things. her online army. <laughs> Boy, have I too. Yeah. Um, but also the um, just staffers too. I mean, there's there's overlap, and of course, there's a little bit of overlap with the Obama world as well. But I am looking at these appointments, and I'm not thinking this is Biden universe. As as critical as we are of Biden, and and how he is a a champion for Wall Street, uh, it looks like it's the Kamala Harris cabinet, and I feel <laughs> like they might want to take a breath <laughs> before. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you're in California. What, what, what do you, but, but with that, actually, what you're saying is she might be more malleable because of the future that she wants to, to she, future ambitions. But if potentially she doesn't have to get elected, there's a very real chance of that, um, that she might inherit the presidency in the next four to eight years. For, that's just life. Uh, but alternatively, if she does have to win, she really does have to shift. And she is not one of these like calcified Washington operatives that come out of the Clintonian DLC era. Like that, right. that era is, is really pushing, you know, they're running around in circles, you know, their last laps as they're running out of breath. That ideology is dead, but they're very much in power. Um, but she's not of that. And it's, she's not a creature of, of power, frankly. I mean, it doesn't mean that she can come out of power, but she didn't build an infrastructure on her own. She sort of inherited one, I guess is a better way of saying it. All what, two things. What, what do you think about that? Is that yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when I, when I look at Kamala Harris, I, the, the same case we were describing about her being a weather vane, effectively, puts the onus on us, we the people. If that is the character that she is, it you know, might not suggest exciting things about someone's convictions, but it does 
suggest opportune things about what we the people can do to hold them accountable because a weather vane responds in a way that Pelosi and Biden over the course of their careers haven't. And so I do think there's an opportunity there. And I do think that Kamala Harris, to her credit, as a uh, as someone who has in the Senate demonstrated a willingness to stand to her historical left, that also is encouraging. You know, her willingness to revisit positions. You know, I really hope that she revisits some of her positions. And just to be clear, her positions in the past have not been good, right? I mean, she was sending parents to jail for the actions of their kids for pro- poverty crimes. She was uh, you know, not helpful with respect to the death penalty, using her office in ways unhelpful for human rights there. She was not a progressive prosecutor. She was a predatory prosecutor who was claiming a progressive background when it was politically convenient. But as a senator, she you know, at least stood up to Trump's judicial nominees in ways that many other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't. She uh, She's taken other positions that, I agree, to your point, are convenient. You know, she favored the Green New Deal um, during the presidential debates. And, and while she, as the vice president-elect, isn't in a position to necessarily you know, stay true to that previous position, if she wins the White House, she might. And that's exactly my point here, is that she, uh, as you know, Kamala Harris, the DA, Kamala Harris, the AG, Kamala Harris, the senator, Kamala Harris, the vice president, and Kamala Harris, the potential future president, are all effectively different people. That's what being a weather vane means. And, you know, that just suggests that we the people have opportunities. Now, your point about her inheriting the presidency instead of having to run for it is a really interesting, you know, just to observe that she didn't win a single state primary. And, you know, neither had Biden before this year, before the entire centrist cabal united around him. So I see this entire transition through the lens of yet another election denied the left in, you know, the election machinery being, you know, effectively contorted. And I, I, you know, so many people are willing to look past, but it is really, uh, it's too soon to stop talking about the divergences between the exit polls and the official results in the Democratic primaries. Those are things that in any other election, we would say would render the results suspect. And, you know, so many people have glibly just moved on into this future that we're stepping into. And I, you know, we can't necessarily relitigate the past, but it does suggest that our elections are anything but reliable. And that's even if you don't think about corporate influence and money yeah. and the role of corporate media and whiteouts suppressing challenger candidates or local press punching down unethically. Like there's so many ways here in which the deck is stacked against change and transition. All that is to say, just coming back to where we started, that Kamala Harris having inherited a political machine as someone who at least seems to be still responsive in some way to the electorate in terms of being willing to shift and change over time, that's a very convenient array of circumstances for us to have someone who responds to us having inherited the tools and power and machinery of the generation that's had its knee on the neck of the left and working class families and communities for a generation. It's interesting you say that. I mean, there's... um... I, I want to talk about like the the attorney general appointment in a second, but yeah. I, I Jamie Harrison, uh, who of course ran for Senate against uh, uh, Lindsey Graham this cycle, Jamie Harrison ran for DNC chair uh, in 2017, and I got to know him and interviewed him several times, and uh, several candidates, including Pete Buttigieg, in that race. Uh, but what was interesting about D- Jamie Harrison was he was everybody else that was for lobbyists in the DNC sort of like danced around it, but Jamie Harrison was like, I'm a lobbyist. I think it's great. I think we need to raise as much money as possible. And he said it with a smile and people liked him. And I just thought even Obama didn't want lobbyists in the DNC, which (laughs) frankly he gutted, but 
it's it's mind boggling to me because um, it has become this apparatus to basically just control elections. I mean, I don't think it was always that way. I think that there was a real, uh, I think there are many DNC members who did not support Bernie, who really believe in state parties, who really do believe in cultivating the next generation of talent, whether it's candidates at the local level or operatives at the local level, because that's how you fight Republicans. I mean, they've been doing this strategically and using, you know, when you lose legislatures, we all know gerrymandering can occur afterwards. And you don't, you know, you, you, that's how you lose. You, that's how you lose the battlefield. And I see them just doubling down on this right now with Jamie Harrison. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. He was a former state party chair. He knows how the DNC works, but I'm not expecting to see a shift in strategy. And my fear is it's not at this point, it's not even about winning. It's just about what you're saying, controlling the left, the left that is growing, the left that will only grow as material uh, interests and circumstances get worse for Americans. And simultaneously, so will the right wings, uh, you know, because, because of their power grid that they have right now, and including media, as you mentioned, um, they will be tapping into most likely white male uh, working class people and young men who are just frustrated with their circumstances. And so the DNC just sits there as sort of this like lever to push the left away and no problem walking in the right in. And I don't mean way, right, like corporate right. I mean like crazy right. The fascist right, right. Another way to put this, and I think you're absolutely right, is that populism is the inevitable future because the corporate center has delegitimated itself. And it delegitimates itself with increasing clarity with every passing day, from the climate crisis to the pandemic to policing, you know, name your issue, right? It's just so obviously corrupt. And so people are looking for answers outside the institutional landscape. And if populism is going to win, it then becomes a question, will it be left populism, right. Bernie, and the movement to try to get universal health care, to try to stop the climate crisis, to try to stand with our communities, or will it be the terrifying right-wing fascism that we have seen in the world before, that we have mobilized as a civilization to fight a world war to stop and establish an international human rights legacy that just to bring it full circle, we have abandoned and are among the principal violators of in the world today. To that extent, I would describe that you know, choice between those two alternative futures as having been made, at least in the past. And the whole point of elections is that we have the chance to choose a different future. And you know, in Biden winning the White House, that didn't happen. Uh, for whatever set of reasons, with Harris in the White House, there might be a path to it. You know, we shall see. One lens I want to offer here that just also connects some of the different threads in our conversation is class. You asked me maybe 20 minutes ago, like how does how to explain Nancy Pelosi's deference to you know corporate industry, even when it undermines the interests of the party and her constituents. And the answer is class. She is a wealthy person, a centimillionaire. Everyone in Congress, with a handful of exceptions fits that description. They are all very comfortable people who are not, and her in particular, just like the president, they're not subject to the pressures that confront the rest of us. None of them are worried about getting evicted. None of them are standing in a bread line that stretches around the block from the food pantry and down the highway. We've all seen videos and photos like that's what we are dealing with, right? She's showing off a freezer full of gourmet ice cream. That, like, I, I mean, I just, it's preposterous to me that people don't think of two-party rule as basically a legitimating veneer for plutocracy. We are talking about rule of a few, rule by the wealthy and by capital. You know, people, this is a point worth like, you know, pressing on. There's a lot of discussion that socialism gains greater footing about capitalism and what it is. And people are like, capitalism is markets. Capitalism is the chance to 
you know, invest in things. Capitalism is money. Capitalism is when people are subject to the needs of resources instead of the other way around, right? Ideally, resources would be subject to the needs of people. That would make sense. But when people are become, have become instrumentalities, when we are reduced to commodities, when we are sacrificed on the meatpacking factory floor or in the in the farms where the farm workers are getting, you know, COVID at astronomical rates and, and bringing it home to their families. When we sacrifice workers on the halls of the hospitals where they go to work and don't have adequate PPE to protect them. That is a declaration that capital matters more to our civilization than human beings. And that is not okay, period. And, and that's where I see Pelosi and Biden standing with the past. And, and that's why I was really excited to support Bernie Sanders. It's why I'm so excited about the squad. It's why I'm so excited about many of the voices emerging around our country that are committed to inverting that calculus, to making insulin and other medications free, to making sure that we're distributing resources to serve human needs instead of squeezing human beings to increase accumulations of capital. That's exactly it. We, we use humans as a commodity, not only a, a resource, as you said, but, but as a commodity. Um, let's talk about some of the appointments. Who stands out to you right now is, uh, the, I mean, we, we've all talked about here, Tandon and Rahm Emanuel. I feel like those are just, I don't want to say distractions. Uh, I mean, Nira is very likely, you know, she may not get confirmed, but I do think that they're, they're put out there to kind of suck up all of the left's energy so that we don't really look into some equally dangerous people for very different reasons. Uh, we just may not be household names. So who are some names, some of these uh, appointments that are, are standing out to you right now? The agriculture department's an interesting one. So Tom Vilsack, uh, former Iowa governor, has been named as Obama's person in that slot. And the idea that 12 years later, we're just going to recycle the same people because that stuff all worked out really well. I mean, it's just Unreal. so weak. It's so weak. Now, the one thing that's interesting here is the, the person I had favored for that slot is Marsha Fudge, who I'm grateful is getting appointed somewhere, though there's a really interesting analysis to share here. So Marsha Fudge is a representative from Ohio. She's been named as the HUD, Housing and Urban Development uh, Director. And, and that's great. I'm glad that she has a spot in the administration, particularly because it opens up a seat in Congress. Now, generally, the movement's concern is don't poach members of Congress for spots in the administration because it's an uncertain political environment. We want to hold those seats. That's a very blue seat. And one person right. who might run for it, you know, someone I'm very uh, excited about, I would love to see Dina Turner in Congress. And if Marsha Fudge going into the administration creates that possibility, like, I'm just excited for that, period, full stop. Let's, you know, make that happen. And... HUD is the appointment basically that black cabinet secretaries get appointed to. Like she's been pigeonholed in a traditional role where, right? <laughs> and, and the point here is that she has expertise yeah. with respect, particularly to her committee work in Congress on issues that relate to the Department of Agriculture and nutrition. And she could be the kind of visionary appointee who has an agenda, who has support from figures, including Jim Clyburn, to whom Joe Biden owes his office. Let's just be clear. So when asked by the person who delivered him the White House, which Jim Clyburn did, and we could tell that story if we needed to, but I'll just presume it for now. Um, you know, Jim Clyburn, the, the person who Biden owes the office to, the, the dean of the Congressional Black Caucus, he goes to the mat for this appointment, and Joe Biden gives us Tom Vilsack, the governor. But Tom Vilsack hates, Mon or, uh, cuts deals with Monsanto. I mean, it's... Right. 
Uh, Marsha Fudge, she, when I was in the Unity Reform Commission, I mean, it's, it's actually amazing. I, I'm going to start paying attention to every member of the Unity Reform Commission and seeing where they ended up. But uh, Marsha Fudge was on the Unity Reform Commission uh, okay. with me. And we, you know, the commission was 21 members and we met, you know, basically over two years around the country. And did you have a chance to interact with her directly? Yes, yes, very much so. Very, nice. very much so. I mean, we had, a, obviously, we interacted with 21 members, so we interacted with everybody. Sure. Um, I mean, it was fascinating to me because she, she, she was somebody who was for the with the reforms that we were putting forward in terms of budget oversight. We worked very closely with her on that. Um, Great. You know, I can't say it wasn't a. I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of game playing happening on that commission, uh, but she worked with us in drafting the language and at least publicly facing. She was, which is important if you're a Congress member. Um, she was for. The, the the unity reform commission like the reforms in terms of budget oversight and getting lobbyists out and transparency and i thought that was commendable nice. and my interactions with her were actually quite lovely and she knew how to to really like work people kind of you know as a congresswoman you have to, mm -hmm. you have to do that mm -hmm. so i think it'd be interesting i had i didn't know about her agricultural experience until i started reading about it this week but um i think you're right i mean it's it's it just shows that the, i whoever made that decision and got into Biden's ear about where Marsha Fudge should go. Um, I mean, it shows his blind spots. It shows how he sees race and class and housing, frankly, right now. Uh, but, you know, mm -hmm. I do really hope that I think she has a, a deeper sense of what's needed in the moment. I do think she recognizes crises. I think she understands what's written. So I'm hoping that um, through that position, unlike, say, a Andrew Cuomo, who ran HUD in the 90s, uh, right. We see somebody who can really transform the house, um, uh, the HUD department, because you know we have a housing crisis in this country, and you look at cities across the country that do receive federal funding uh, when it comes to public housing, and public housing is in disarray. Public housing is not free for people to live there; they have to pay rent. In oftentimes, it's not cheap. Uh, it 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 it's way higher than many small cities across America. If you look at the big cities um, and there's a huge crisis, whether it's like paint crisis or water uh, or just being in total decay, not having ha uh, heat equipment uh, upgrades, you know, we've seen the stories and we've read them. So I'm hoping she understands that and she'll uh, present the needs of the most vulnerable people um, from that position. So likewise, final thoughts, Shahid. Well, you're, you're, you're pressing on a, a really important uh, aspect of the role that a lot of people overlook, like the cabinet level positions are effectively advocates for the departments that they oversee. And so you're absolutely right that there is a dire housing crisis. There was a housing crisis even before the pandemic made it worse, right? And, and I fear that by the time the Biden administration takes office, presuming for the moment that, you know, the obstacles in the meantime remove themselves, uh, it will get you worse. Trump. <laughs> Basically, well, and particularly the courts. I, I don't trust the courts any further than one can throw them. You know, uh, we literally have torturers with lifetime seats to the Supreme Court. Most people don't realize Brett Kavanaugh was a Bush era torture lawyer. This is why this is why accountability matters, and why when people talk about you know giving the Trump administration criminals a free pass, I remember when we did that for the Bush era criminals because Obama wanted to look forward, not back. And as a result, we now get Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court and Gina Haspel leading the CIA instead of both of them being in prison where they belong. And, and that's why we need to take on these fights. So when they, they mock AOC for saying we should try the Trump administration or never let them work again, there is a reason. These people don't go away. They are swamp Absolutely. creatures. They are cockroaches. They literally will come back and, I mean, worse, they eat you alive. They're vultures. They prey on the public. They are, they are predators, uh, like constitutional predators, you might say. And, and one of them is on the Supreme Court. 
right? And then, and he's not even the furthest right. Barrett is further to the right. And we've seen the propensity, not just of the Supreme Court, but the GOP Senate as well, to put you know, naked partisan interest in front of fidelity to the country and the people. And so given that state of affairs, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm very hesitant to be, you know, uh, uh, falsely assured of a transition happening. But just, again, to presume that it happens, I think that Fudge in the cabinet is great because she will be a stronger advocate for housing interventions and support than I think any of her predecessors were. And, you know, especially with members of Congress, maybe hopefully including Nina Turner, clamoring for social housing. And there have been some really insightful proposals. I had the honor of uh, being at the press conference on the Senate side when Bernie and AOC introduced the Green New Deal for public housing. And it's a transformative vision that would introduce, I mean, like I think the first wave was $80 billion to retrofit established public housing to make sure it's as, you know, environmentally and uh, friendly and particularly as energy efficient as, as could possibly be. And the vision also includes returning accountability for public housing developments to the communities. And this era of social housing that we could step into, where instead of governments supporting private development to make affordable units, instead we have publicly owned facilities that can be accountable to the residents in the communities, that's the sweet spot and we can get there. And that's something that Marsha Fudge might be instrumental in, in making happen. And I just go back to where we started, which is that if any opening to get someone like Nina Turner into Congress mm -hmm. is one we should all be very excited about because she can do a lot with a platform like that to ask questions and oversight hearings, to introduce novel right. proposals, to call bullshit on the corporate Democrats and to help, you know, frankly, marshal a movement of people around the country who recognize this lack of legitimacy that is spreading across the center and people who are looking for alternative voices who recognize that we need them. Like the squad is great and we need to expand it. And I think Nina would be, uh, you know, an incredible general to, 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 to marshal the squad. It's, we live in interesting times. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a lot happening. I never thought I'd be cheering on John Ossoff and, and, and even Marsha <laughs> Fudge to be honest, but like, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a crazy moment. Um, crazy things, certainly. It does. Yeah. Uh, Shahid Buttar, always a pleasure. Come back soon. Happy Great holidays. It's early to say that, whatever. Happy holidays. We'll see you Thanks, soon. Everybody. All right. Stay, ha care. stay healthy and happy. Keep up the good work. Thanks for having me. You too. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back with Simon Road and Jordan Zacharin to talk about today's news because there's a lot of it. <laughs> talk soon. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. As always, excited to have our fantastic panel here. We have the one and only Jordan Zacharin, who runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check it out right now. And Simon Road, who's a socialist writer, former organizer in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And of course, he's a member of Team TNS. That's the Nomi Q show for those of you who don't know that. All right. Let's start with the news that we just ended on. Uh, let's start with, with uh, the news that Marsha Fudge uh, was nominated, Representative Marsha Fudge from Ohio, uh, is nominated to be the, the Director of Housing and Urban Development, uh, HUD, otherwise known as HUD. And uh, that leaves an opening for her seat, which is in Ohio, which happens to be where Senator, former state Senator Nina Turner uh, lives. Can we roll that clip that we have up there? 
Uh, one of the positions that uh, we're hearing about now, and, and, and James Clyburn has been pushing for this, is for Marsha Fudge to step up and be the uh, new Secretary of Agriculture. If she leaves, there will be a serious fight for her congressional seat, and we're hearing everything from uh, local names like Dennis Kucinich and, and Bashir Jones, who's on city council in Cleveland, uh, and even Nina Turner may fight for her seat. As somebody who was a part of the Warren campaign and sort of the progressive left in America, is there a real belief that some of these seats, as they open up, are opportunities for the Democratic left uh, to take a former spot with Cedric Richmond or Marsha Fudge, or is it still believed that their best bet is to move into the new Biden administration? Well, I have to agree with Congressman Clyburn. I think my former national president of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, <laughs> Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, would make it a phenomenal Secretary of Agriculture with all of her experience on the committees that she's on in Congress. And you make a good point that there are a lot of people in her district, as well as in New Orleans and so many other districts where there are majority black people that not just want progressive policies, they want policies that are actually going to do something for them that are going to create that systemic change. And as we've seen over the years past, sometimes you have folks rising up and challenging incumbents to get that change that they are that they are working for. And so I think this is a great opportunity to see some young, fresh black leadership, because I think it's critical that in both New Orleans and Cleveland, they are majority black cities, that we have black representation, that you have someone young, fresh, some new ideas, someone we may not have even heard of, who is really ready to be bold on the issues that we need, bold in Congress to be there with a Nakima Williams and Cori Bush to actually make this work for Black Americans, folks who carry Biden over the line in 2020. I am so curious if she supported Cori Bush uh, in 2020 when she ran or before. All right, let's let's just start off with uh, the, the the basic controversy that people are kind of starting to talk about, which is why was uh, Representative Marsha Fudge, who's an expert on ag policy, uh, picked for housing and urban development, which is sort of like a okay, this is where we put the, the, the black representative of our cabinet. Uh, Jordan, I see you smiling. What do you think? Well, I think it's pretty cool. Like this is the one place that's giving out jobs in the country and you can just like apply for one thing and get another one. It's kind of random like that. It's like uh, a chocolate factory, the Willy Wonka. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It seems like they're doing that a lot, right? They wanted to give the governor of New Mexico a different position than Interior. They, they want to give Interior to Deb Haaland, who probably should be the person doing that. Uh, it seems like this entire cabinet is made up of, you know, you know, they have to juggle a lot of issues, a lot of uh, concerns or a lot of uh, obligations, but just really, you know, they just want to get diversity in for the sake of it without really thinking about who's the best qualified to do one thing or another, while also making sure that they get the big, the big roles filled by people like Tom Vilsack, right? You know, I can't, I've talked to a lot of people just about agriculture in general, you know, the place where, um, you know, Marsha Fudge wanted to work and, Tom Vilsack, people are saying, are the reason why Republicans won in 2016. You know, he hollowed out so much of the, you know, the rural uh, country, small farmers, you know, he's making a million dollars a year as a dairy lobbyist. You know, it's, it's no worse. It's no better than working for BlackRock or someplace like that, which also didn't really stop some of Biden's nominees either. But <laughs> to, uh, to have, you know, Marsha Fudge, who's, who'd be great, in agriculture, they can go to housing because, like you said, uh, maybe some um, really basic reasons, really stupid reasons, is you know not just annoying; it's bad for the country. 
it's also racist. Yeah. <laughs> if I can right. just say it, call it what it is. Yes, yes. Uh, Simon, I mean, Tom Vilsack is going to be our ag secretary. Does this mean that we're going to have a war on uh, almond milk and macadamia milk now because the dairy lobbyist is taking charge? Let's <laughs> hope not. Uh, yeah, no, I think that it, it's a really interesting appointment for Marsha Fudge. I think that uh, Vanessa B wrote for The Intercept um, that, you know, like really going over um, Marsha Fudge's like tenure in Congress and saying that it reveals no interest in uh, in the housing universe, honestly, like at all. And for a position that's such that's so important, especially this year when we're in a housing crisis that, as Piper put so eloquently last week, is not temporary, right? Like this is this is. Um, this is a crisis that's been going on before the pandemic. It's going to be going on a long time after the pandemic. And uh, yeah, exactly, this, this piece here. So like, if it's not tokenism, then why? You know, what is it? Like, what um, what qualifies her specifically for this position? But um, I'm not too hung up on that uh, conversation at the moment. I am very excited about this this spot opening up for, for Nina Turner specifically, as we've talked about. I think that she'd be great. And I think that she might actually go for it. You know, Nina Turner's talked, um, she, she expressed a lot of interest in being the vice presidential pick for Bernie Sanders. There were sort of hints about that. There were hints about her being um, open to the idea of running for president in four years. So I think that this, as a as a stepping stone and, and any political power we can give Nina Turner, I think would be great right now. So, yeah. Jordan? Yeah, I was going to say that I was reading that in that district where Marsha Fudge is, where Nina Turner would run, that whole area of Cleveland, turnout has been really depressed, you know, for for voting, you know, in, in each election. And I think that there's a million reasons why that happened, not to mention voter suppression and so many other reasons, right? We can't put it on the on the uh, the fault or on the heads of people who are the, the voters there. But I think having someone like Nina Turner could really help activate the area as well. Ohio has gone so red and it still has a super majority in the state Senate, even though half the people in the state government are going to go down with secretary, the uh, Speaker of the State House there. It's so Republican. Meaning and there's a, there's a, uh, yeah, there's, there's a scandal. A scandal there. There's a scandal there, yeah. So the, it's, it's become so Republican. And so not only would Nina Turner be a great person having Congress to have her be able to create a movement in Ohio in a place that's been just beaten down over the years for a million of reasons, deindustrialization, de COVID, you name it, to have someone like that both in Congress and back in Cleveland and in the area activating people, I think would be like, those two things would be desperately needed. It's interesting because Cleveland, um, you know, I've talked to Nina about this. Like there's, there's a, there's a, a real machine there, a real political machine. And, and she butt heads with the machine. Um, I think this is pretty public uh, because she is not a machine member. Shocker. Like we've all butt heads with the machine. So I'm, I'm very curious to see uh, what tricks they try on her. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be very hard for them to fight her off. Um, you know, it's one thing to fight Nina Turner as a state senator. It's another thing to fight Nina Turner after the the, the Bernie 16 in 2020 runs, um, especially after the machine tried to shut down Cori Bush uh, multiple times and she broke through. I mean, there, and it really does come down to what you said, Jordan, like she was able to mobilize uh, folks. When you're running against a traditional machine, um, in a moment where there's such a crisis and that machine has not done anything to turn people out, which was exactly what happened in Cori Bush's district. They weren't, you know, the, 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 the legacy machine was not investing in the community. And as a result, Cori, through tremendous hard work, was able to create this model. She ran a few times, had her name ID out, uh, built a real campaign that, that, that was grassroots and organized. She was able to obviously mobilize more votes. And I think that you might see a similar scenario 
um, you know, both urban districts, which is important too, because it's it's a little bit easier to organize communities when when there's so many people um, in those districts, kind of in a small small uh, area. So it's exciting. I mean, if anything, it's it's, it's actually just going to be really fascinating political. Um, I mean, if I didn't love Nia Turner, <laughs> I would be fascinated with this with, with this race anyways, just because it's really interesting political scenario. Yeah, it's also she doesn't have to run against an incumbent like Cory Bush did, right? There's exactly. no there's a big vacuum there, which is absolutely huge if you're trying to be an insurgent candidate winning an office. That's right. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about uh, just some some of the other stuff that's going on in the world today, as if I'm, <laughs> there isn't enough. Um, so Joe Biden is considering. Uh, this is my favorite story of the day: former 2020 presidential candidate and former 2017 DNC chair candidate. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, who's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, for a position as ambassador to China. Does he speak Mandarin? Does anybody know? Probably. <laughs> I don't know if it's one of the 12 he speaks. I don't, 12? I thought it was like four. No, it's 12. Okay. Um, th- this was, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? I feel like this is where they send people that they don't want to deal with anymore. No, maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> I mean, reportedly, he had interest in in um, having a more like foreign policy oriented position in the cabinet, according to that Axios piece, actually. But um, I don't know. I yeah, maybe not really judge me. I think I think okay. I wanted to say one more thing. I want. I think it's very interesting the way that you introduced him, right? Um, as you know, DNC the mayor of South Bend, former presidential candidate. And what I always think about when I think about Pete Buttigieg is also former McKinsey consultant. And oh, everything course. that means <laughs> for a position that deals with other countries. I mean, if you look at like McKinsey's record with like, um, with, with, with projects in other countries, it's not pretty. It is is not good. I mean, their biggest client being Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian government, like they had this big like debacle in South Africa. There's just like, it's just not not good. Uh, and if that's the sort of like way he's going to be approaching communications with China, I don't think it's... I mean, arguably, good. he was, uh, what was strange to me about this appointment is he wanted a, a cabinet position um, and he didn't want to be, and they mentioned something about like OMB maybe, and he goes, no, I don't want to be a staffer. <laughs> oh, Jordan. <laughs> we, it's one of those things where we see, you know, on the Republican right, you know, people who are really f- just venomous right they refuse to accept any loss and they've empowered them for so long that they can now they now have to cater to them right this the speaker of the pennsylvania house said that her home would be blown up if she didn't publicly say that uh she was against biden if she didn't say that trump had the election stolen from her we don't quite have that on the left but we do have pete Buttigieg apparently holding people hostage i think that's what must be happening or it may just be that you know he's very good at catering to powerful oligarchs so maybe that's what they're sending him to china for but i I think that more than anything else it's interesting to see well, to know what is Biden's position on China going to be, because that is a big open question. He may be a lot, he may be more similar to Trump than than uh, than Biden, given the way things have developed over the years. And so I don't know what it means to send Pete Buttigieg there, but Biden's policy to China, I think, is a big open question right now and will make a huge difference. And, you know, on that note, uh, given that Buttigieg is sort of uh, a creation of the Obama land, not creation, I shouldn't say, and at least his presidential and his vice president in his uh, DNC chairs race, he was supported by uh, Axelrod and Liz Smith, of course, who came out of the uh, Obama campaign. She was rapid response director. She also used to represent the IDC in New York uh, and was working with Cuomo. 
But what I, I find really fascinating about that is the Obama administration was so key, so focused on their Asia policy, you know, the, the, the Asian Pacific uh, countries coming together. And of course, that was partnered with the TPP policy, which was pushed out by Tom Perez, who, who knows what he's going to get. He'll get something. But I just find it fascinating because, you know, is this to restore relations so that they can go back to the height of TPP, at least globally? Um, but it's, it, it just reinforces it's the wrong message for this moment. You know, you just won back the Rust Belt and you're likely going to be leaning in on these trade policies again. So I think it's a, that's an interesting point, um, Jordan. All right, let's go to one more story. Uh, all right, so Ben Burgess uh, wrote in Jacobin that we can't just go back to normal. Biden's regressive picks on climate and foreign policy will return us to an age of neoliberal American exceptionalism, not a time of peace and prosperity for all. We weren't even in peace and prosperity for all before, but you know, there's this like MSNBC veneer that that is has has made normie Democrats feel that way. Uh, what you guys all read this piece? What was your take on it, Simon? You're nodding your head. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, well, not only can we not afford to go back to normal, which is, I think, you know, the primary focus of the piece, but also we like literally can't go back to normal. The world isn't normal anymore. Like the world is not what it was a decade ago or even four years ago. Uh, we have new crises um, that demand more urgent responses than this corporate neoliberalism uh, that Biden's proposing. So I, I fully agree with, with that statement. We can't go back to normal. What would normal be to you, Jordan? Um, you know, I think normal is, uh, I think it's so many so many MSNBC watchers and people like that don't want to think about politics. I think that to them is like, oh, I don't want to think about this. Like maybe I'll watch a Sunday show, but I really just want to not worry about what someone's tweeting or what the what's anything's going to happen to the market, right? I just want to live my life. And I think there's an admirable, you know, people want to do that. And I think if, you know, I wish the country was at the point where they could do that, they could go about along with their lives. But like Simon said, we can't get to that point uh, until we fix everything. So we can't go back to the way things were. When I say fix, I mean make better, right? Whether it's trade policy, whether it's healthcare policy. Yeah, we got to build back better, right? Yeah, I, I mean, there's no way to do it because so much has been destroyed. And this is probably the one opportunity. I think the opportunity that Obama missed out on after Bush was, again, I don't want to use the term build back better, but this is the opportunity should you know we win the Senate and should we you know grow some guts to actually make some big changes, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on labor policy, whether it's on a million other things. I mean, even the things that even, you know, centrist Democrats like Chuck Schumer proposing getting rid of student debt to do something like that on day one, $50,000 per person. Obviously, I think there's so many other things that should be done on day one, but just to start making things a big change from the start is the only way that A, Democrats are going to win in 2018 and B, like anything's going to get better and stop Republicans from, I don't know, running the country off the cliff the next time they get in office. Speaking of 2018, um, or 2022, excuse me, uh, <laughs> the Democrats seem to, may, they may actually be abandoning their strategy. I don't know if you guys heard this, of the Lincoln Project. The results are in. The Lincoln Project, shocker, you guys ready for this? After all the money they raised and supposedly put into grassroots organizing in swing states and all those ads, turns out those, those ads did not actually work. They did a study on this. Sam Stein did this piece uh, in the Daily Beast. You can go check it out. Going viral was nice, but it didn't actually make a difference. Amazing. Uh, I know we've talked about the Lincoln Project. Is this the end of the grift, Simon? 
Um, you know, there, there's always going to be a grift when it comes to politics here in the United States and everywhere. Um, it's That's just how it is. And it turns out, unfortunately, that many, many Americans fell for this Lincoln Project grift and essentially gave tens of millions of dollars to build up what will be like the, the new Republican Party. Um, so great, you know. That's okay. You know, we we all make mistakes, uh, and you know, we go on and, and oh, they'll survive. They'll survive. I mean, these guys survived the Bush administration and reinvented themselves. If you can survive war crimes and 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 reinvent yourself, you know, to build the Republican Party back, Jordan, <laughs> what is this new Republican Party going to look like? Well, that's the thing. Is like it's never been a good party. I, I mean, maybe around Lincoln's time, maybe, but you know building back the Republican Party suggests that they were a good influence in the first place. You know, that's the whole problem with American politics is this idea that we need to have two parties and they have to be, you know, they both have to be equal and they need to have, you know, uh, people that are both control government. You know, the Republican Party today is a bunch of terrorists. I think that, you know, we can't call them that because that is, you know, because that's not American exceptionalism. That's not accepted by the media, but it is a bunch of terrorists. Um, but like Simon said, like, there's not going to be any end of a grift, right? This, that's always going to happen continuously. I just think about what could have grassroots organizations, state candidates done with that $67 million raised by the Lincoln Project. I mean, that is so much money. And it is so hard to raise money for grassroots and local candidates because I've been doing it for years. And People can say, oh, I really like that guy. I, I just don't have the money right now, but they can't give a hundred bucks to the Lincoln Project every time they see a, a viral ad. So that to me is just heartbreaking knowing that where the money could have gone. I don't even care if those guys get rich. Awful people get rich in America all the yeah. time. Just give some money to the good people. It didn't even end up in the Democratic Party's hands. That's what's like, this is such a metaphor for the Democratic Party that they worked with this Republican group and the money didn't even go into the DNC. It went into the future Republican Party. Like, this is what we are today. This is this is the epitome of the Democratic Party. All right, I have one last story. Um, I'm going to surprise you guys with this one, but I I'm obsessed with this story, and I should have I should have uh, mentioned it when we were talking about China. But there was a Chinese spy. <laughs> Do you guys read this? No. Okay, so there's this one. There, oh, oh, <laughs> this is an exclusive. It came out with an Axios, and it's been everywhere. But um, can we scroll down a little bit just so I have her name? Uh, wait, wait, hang on a second. Let me see. Okay, so the name of the woman is, uh, her last name is Fang. Can we move up just so I have her name handy? Uh, so this woman, uh, she was, she came to US and she went to school in the US, she went to college in the US. And then she basically, um, her, her US name was Christine Fang. Um, she came to the US for school and then she started to get involved in politics, everything from, you know, uh, volunteering on campaigns, going to different events, going to conferences, meeting with all these elected officials and political folks and raising money. And so she did this specifically, she targeted, um, I mean, she, she, a lot of elected officials, but Northern California, Silicon Valley in particular. So she targeted uh, elected officials like Eric Swalwell and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, she raised money for, but she also met with uh, Representative Ro Khanna, many, many more. And then the really scandalous part is that she actually had uh, sexual interactions with two mayors in, in the US, small, one small town mayor, uh, and then another mayor actually labeled her as his girlfriend at one point. Now, Eric Swalwell, why this is important is he's on the intelligence committee. And so the Republicans uh, are having a lot of fun with this right now, but who knows who they've fallen victim to, so they should be careful as well. But this is bizarro. I mean, it's not bizarro. It's probably happening every single day. But what? All right. 
Simon, you're smiling. <laughs> this is wild. It's it sounds like something out of a, like a movie or something. I, it's so cool. Um, on that on that aspect of it, so cool. <laughs> but uh, not not actually right. Because I I think you know one of my first concerns is like what you know what what is going to what's the narrative going to be around this? Um, you know like oh we've been compromised by the you know the communist Chinese government and like is this going to be used in order to like raise tensions with China in order to like um like later down the road justify intervention or or, or some kind of war uh with China um which you know w- worst case scenarios um but yeah this is interesting to accompany the Pete Buttigieg story um who knows I mean do you remember there was this interview uh I think it was on Face the Nation during the primaries where Pete Buttigieg was asked about the the war in Iraq and he's like oh I didn't support that at all uh, and I think it's important that we look at that um as uh um democracy promotion gun at, done at gunpoint that's what he called the war in Iraq um which is just like what like democracy promotion like if, if you're looking at like our legacy abroad in that kind of way like what could you think about like who could we call like have war with china and call it democracy promotion um i don't know i don't know i just going off the rails here but like this is it's it's a crazy story it's a crazy story and and i just find it they're, they've always played the long game, right? So she comes in when she's in college and, you know, several years later, she's fully integrated in in po- the political. I mean, I'm curious, like how many people do we know that could be spies that we're not even aware of? Well, Jordan, it, are you it's like uh, Maria Bettina. So I don't know why Republicans are saying anything. Uh, you know, they the just Russian, they were like- The Russian spy, yes. Re- yeah, Republicans, well, Republicans are like making fun of Democrats for getting- uh, tricked by her when they were all over Maria Butina and all those uh, goofy photos. So it shows that stupidity is bipartisan. And I think more than anything else, it shows you how dumb so many of these people are that are in office. Like it takes more like chutzpah than any sort of actual like intelligence to run for office. And so I think that's the real moral, moral of the story. Any like young person can come in and trick every single person that's uh, an elected official in the United States and go years and years and years feeding information to their home country before they get caught. So I hope that's inspiring. I think that's what Pete Buttigieg, maybe that's what they're sending him to do. They shouldn't have said anything. They should have just sent him to China uh, yeah. quietly and he could you know, be a spy. I mean, he probably already <laughs> was. I, what's really fascinating about this though, just on that angle is the, the reason why the FBI realized she was a spy was she was interacting with someone that they were already investigating who was in, uh, I believe the ambassador's office in, or the consulate's office in one of the cities and that person was a spy. And so it opened up this crevice. And then, and then as soon as she realized um, that they were investigating her, she fled the country. And then all of these lawmakers got briefed. I mean, can you imagine just sitting there and being like... <laughs> I think they admitted it to one another. Were they like, you were with her too? Like they're all just yelling at each other? They're <laughs> all on signal on a group chat. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Which app is not owned by the Chinese? Quick, <laughs> which one? All right, guys, Jordan Zacker, and always a pleasure, Simon Road. Thank you for coming on today. This was a wa- wonderful panel. Uh, crazy news. We will see you next week. Um, you two next week. We'll see everybody else tomorrow. I'll give some quick shout outs to, to the chat who's in the chat today. Um, but thank you guys. Thanks, Simon, and thanks, Jordan. Thank All right. <laughs> so we have Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, of course. Thanks for the love. Not happy with Agriculture Secretary pick. However, anyone's better than Purdue. 
the man sold farmers out to meatpacking to the meatpacking lobby, who are the worst. Special love and thank you to Professor Harvey K and everyone in the live chat mixing it up. You guys are feisty. I've been reading the chats lately. I wish I could chime in and while I'm on the show, you guys are doing a great job. Um, and especially thank you to Midi Doctors for working the algorithms. And of course, our moderator, Bob, for keeping the chat rooms troll free. I just wish we could get them out after the show goes up because I see a lot of bots go in afterwards. It's mind boggling. All right. We will see you tomorrow. We have a great show tomorrow. We have the one and only Marianne. Williamson on. She is our special interview. And then afterwards, we're going to do a one-on-one with Representative Chris Rabb from Pennsylvania. He's going to talk about reparations, which of course was one of the key issues that Marianne Williamson presented during the Democratic debates. Uh, and it caught fire. I, you know, it should have a long time ago, but she really brought it to the table of the debates and pushed other lawmakers and people running for um, president to, to back her up on that. So Chris Rabb is going to talk a little about the history of reparations and why it's important and his bill that he has in the Pennsylvania House. That's tomorrow right here, 3 p.m. Eastern on The Nomi Key Show. Go check us out on Patreon.com as well. Patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. Take care, everybody. 